Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajasad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists, and I'm going to ask Ben to give me a good list of all the publications he's recently written for, just so that you can check him out. You can vet him yourself, you know. Go for it, Ben. You can find my work at Driving Line, at Business Insider, and at Haggerty. And you can find my work at Autotrader.ca, as well as Nouveau Magazine. Ben, we've got some cars to talk about this week, some pretty exciting ones, although ones that I think uh, marketing-wise might be lost in the shuffle. Can you, can you start us off with the car that you have? Well, it's kind of a Viking funeral for this particular car, Sammy, the uh, 2020 Subaru BRZ TS. What do you mean by Viking funeral? Well, what is it's, that, this what is, is the Viking funeral part of this. This is the last year, I'm pretty sure, that we're going to see a, this generation BRZ in showrooms. And the TS is a special model. It means tuned by STI. And it last was available, I believe, in 2018 in the U.S. Is that correct, Sammy? Uh, I think so. I remember this car having a big old spoiler, like a really humorously large carbon fiber spoiler. So the, and I think the, that carbon fiber bit was probably the most expensive part that they tacked onto the price tag of the vehicle. So the, the, the car's spoiler is not that big this time. It does still have a carbon fiber spoiler on the back, but it's it's more modest. It's manually adjustable, but it doesn't really give you more downforce if you do that. So there's not, not a lot of point to that particular aspect of the car. But it matches other things about the vehicle, uh, including the STI wheels. It's got a splitter up front and side skirts and a whole bunch of red trim to remind you you're driving something special inside and out. And uh, the interesting part, though, Sammy, is the suspension tuning. It's STI has gone ham on the coil springs front and rear on the... I don't know why I specified their coil springs. It's not like they're leaf springs on this car. <laughs> um, on the, the dampers from Saks, or if I'm saying that right, Saks Shocksh. And uh, it has a, a, a Torsen LSD like all BRZs do, but yeah. it has bigger Brembo brakes front and rear. Okay. And uh, it, it's got chassis stiffening up front and some additional steering bits to kind of uh, keep things feeling a little more lively. In short, it's a very track-focused version of a car that was already pretty good on the track. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to – that's what I'm laughing at right now is like, all right, let me think about the things that a BRZ needs. Uh, or actually, let's talk about the things that a BRZ is, already has – um, really good marks in steering. Oh, they've improved the steering in this one. Okay, suspension. They've improved the suspension on this one already. Uh, like it seems like they've taken all the things that were already pretty good about the car and then made them better somehow, or made them, or try to emphasize that they're more durable or track oriented. You, you than the say car. that like it's a bad thing. Like where are you going with uh, this yeah. point? I'm not saying it's a it's a bad thing, but it's just insane that every time we talk about this car, there's going to be 400 comments that are like, well, the BRZ just needed more power. Where's the more power? It doesn't and have more power. I'm going to spoiler alert you right now. It still has 205 horsepower and 156 pound-feet of torque. It never has more power, but so, it has improved handling, which is nothing that anyone was – which was – Nobody was asking for that. Well, so what's what more, is this car built for? What's more mysterious about the uh, the TS version of the car is that it's only like $2,500 more than the only other BRZ you can currently buy, which is the Limited, which starts at 28845 and the TS is 31495 There's not a big price difference there. And if you kind of dig into the Limited, 
you can add a uh, a package. It's, it's, I can't remember if it's called Sport or Performance or whatever, but it, it gives you many of the upgrades for springs and shocks that you kind of get with the TS. But the mm-hmm. TS takes it to like another level, and this package is around like a thousand bucks or maybe just a bit more. So okay. you're kind of splitting this infinite difference, this infinite hairs, a very small hairline yeah. difference between these two cars with this package so it's like there's three almost identical versions of the car <laughs> except one of them is rare in the sense they're only going to sell a handful and i think dealers are only allocated a few ts editions i think the mm-hmm. first generation ts would in 2018 was only 500 examples so i don't have an accurate number on how many there are going to be my suspicion for 2020 is it'll be as many as they can sell yeah but- because I um, think the enthusiasts already bought the last model, right? Like the the 2018 model. So yes. they're like, we got it. We don't need a new one. Sure. But I, what I like about this car, though, is that it kind of makes the car, the, the BRZ, very track ready. And it, it gives you two versions of the car. There's one that's a little softer for the street. And there's another that is ready for a track day right away. And I think that difference shows itself the most often when you're driving in just normal traffic. Because the TS is pretty stiff, Sammy. It bounces you yeah. around. I, I know you own a BRZ. And would you say that yours is somewhat soft uh, in, in regular driving? Like soft enough to be comfortable? Or do you notice things like rough pavement? Right, so I've got a, a 2013. It was a Scion FRS, not a not a Subaru, but they're essentially identical. And I'll say that I thought my car was stiff until I drove a TS. So that's pretty much like that's how different the two the the, the two cars are. Which is to say, not that not that different as well. And I will admit, I have taken my car as stock can be onto a track, and I felt pretty happy, and, and, and I enjoyed my time there. So the the enthusiast that Subaru is is targeting with this TS model is somebody who was not as confident or not as sure about these components on the on the standard BRZ and wants that extra reassurance that these have been tuned specially by TS. And I just don't believe that that's a real buyer. Well, like, I don't I, think the, that's a person. <laughs> you're also getting some pretty badass tires with the car. And it comes yeah. with 18-inch uh, Pilot Sport 4s, right? Yeah, I will admit the best thing about the, the performance package and the TS are the upgraded tires and probably the brakes because... I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with with extra braking. I think um, that those tires alone, if you were to add them to a base model or limited yeah. limited model BRZ, is like a thousand dollars at least. Yeah, and so, I think they're worth it. I think they're really, really good, and it also changes. A lot of people are worried that when you add more tire to a car like the like a momentum car like the BRZ, you'll take away some of its. Uh, uh, character. A lot of people are worried about the the slidiness and the and the drift readiness of this kind of car. And if you add more tire, you'll get rid of that. And in yeah. my experience, that hasn't been the case. No, I think that was entirely invented by journalists. I'm gonna one hundred ridiculous. I'm gonna one hundred percent say that it it's just that's that's dumb. That you should <laughs> yeah. always put as much tire on a car as your suspension is tuned to handle. And clearly, Subaru has tuned or STI, sorry, has tuned the suspension on the TS to be a perfect match for the PS fours. So. Um, I, I think, you know, every time I drive a BRZ or an 86, my first thought is why don't I own this car? Like it is such a fantastic, yeah, it is a fantastic car to drive. It just feels like you're one with the vehicle. Um, it's got a, it's got a great form factor. It's got a back seat so you can throw your junk in it. Uh, which you can't get in a Miata. It has a hard top, which is important to a lot of people who are not interested in a convertible and who therefore won't look at a Miata, even though we know the RF is out there these days. But um, 
it's just it's a fantastic car. The BRZ is a fantastic car. It is fun to drive. I don't care about the horsepower thing. It's enough power for me to have fun with. And the TS, if you're focused on going to the track, it's a spectacular value. Right. Um, I want to I want to ask you some more questions about that thought. So I obviously I wasn't as disciplined as you. I drove it first uh, in in 2012, and I was like, I just have to have this. There's no. I felt like there weren't very many cars that represented this kind of like, as you said, a car that makes you feel like you're one with the vehicle. And it was at that right, at a right price point back then, at least as a Scion model. So why wouldn't you? What are the real legitimate reasons somebody wouldn't buy one of these things when they're looking for a sports car? Um, you said the power, um, and, and I'm, I'm not sure about that because I think this is a car that feels fast no matter what speed I did, you're I at. I didn't say the power. No, I, you said you, would, you, would, you wouldn't have considered the – sorry. You don't find the power to be an issue. No. And I agree with you because I think this is a vehicle that feels fast no matter what speed you're at. Um, and I think that's, that's enjoyable and a trait that's hard to find in, in very many modern cars. And uh, you know, if you look at what's available around that price point, I mean what are you really going to buy? You're going to buy an EcoBoost Mustang, which we talked about fairly exhaustively on a recent episode, which doesn't feel anything like this car. And You're, definitely doesn't even feel this close on the track. Like, it doesn't feel that enjoyable on the track. No, it's much heavier. Uh, you're going to buy a GTI, mm-hmm. which is, a, again, a different class of car in terms of driving feel. You're yeah, going to buy a, a Camaro 1LE, which handles extremely well, but just the, it's not fun. Like, the, the, the power... The way the power is generated in that turbo version of the car, which is what you'd have to get, I think, around the $30,000 mark, it's right. just not enjoyable. I find that to split the difference between kind of what an EcoBoost Mustang would feel and how good this car feels on the track. It would probably split the difference there. I think it was really important that you brought up the GTI, which is a very good, uh, refined, fun-to-drive vehicle uh, for the daily commute. I'm not sure how great it is anymore on the track. It's no, a little bit less... Uh, it's moved a little bit away from that, right? I mean, I'm going to say something controversial. I just don't want a front-wheel drive car in a high-performance mm-hmm. track situation. It's just not okay. a dynamic that I enjoy. And I think that the BRZ represents perhaps the best learning tool and the best – and you mentioned it earlier, like a purest experience that you can get in a modern car mm-hmm. um, in, in that situation. And uh, there's also the Veloster N, which I think is a lot of fun. That is and a great car. I think it, it's probably more fun than the BRZ on a street. Um, mm-hmm. On a racetrack – I really haven't had a chance to flog a, a Veloster N. It's hard to say, but again, it's front-wheel drive, so it's going to be a different kind of experience. Um, That's not to say that the experience would be awful. It's still going to be fun in its own way. Yeah, but I, I'm just saying my preference. So okay. I would I would still go for the BRZ over that. You know, as a daily driver, I think the Veloster N is much closer because uh, the other things that would keep you out of a BRZ, it, mm-hmm. it's it's small. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's good for two people. It's far less practical than a hatchback, right? Yes, much less. The trunk is really not great. Uh, you can pop the seats down in the back, but even then, you know, you're going to have to have low profile toolkits for your, for your track paddock. And you're not going to be bringing too many tires with you unless you're, you have a little trailer or you put them on the roof or whatever. Um, it's, it's, if you have kids, you're not going to be driving this car. I mean, in a Mustang, it's, it's a lot more feasible to throw kids in the back seat. So mm-hmm. that, those are kinds of things that I think might keep people away from it. Okay. Uh, but what what about you? What do you think would keep you out of a? I mean, you you have one. What what is it? Right. What is it about your BRZ that you do not like? It is it it is the if you get stuck in a commute, uh, a longer commute, it is a vehicle that does wear on you a little bit. Um, I I do find that it can be a little stiff. Maybe the seats are a bit too hard and uncomfortable. I don't think they're the most uh, comfortable seats. They're very supportive. They're great on the track, but 
again, when you're not on the track, which is probably nine out of 10 times, eight out of 10 times, you're going to notice that you're like, ah, this feels a little uh, cramped. Um, my model didn't have, my version of the car didn't have a lot of um, features that made it like accommodating for the regular everyday commute. So um, no heated seats, which might be um, really important for people who live. The TS, has, no- the TS has heated seats. Yeah, um, I have a really, really garbage um, uh, interface for the, what's it called? The, what is it called, Ben? Infotainment system. Yeah, I don't have an infotainment system. It is literally just a dial with some buttons on it, which tell me what radio station I'm listening so to. They have fixed that in this model. It's a lot better. It's okay. It's the, there's a, the one I had had a seven-inch uh, touchscreen system. I remember how terrible the ones were earlier. <laughs> uh, that was like a pioneer I, system, I think. It is. And, and I kept it was bad. Every I time would... you would touch like something, it would turn itself off. Like the off button was way too close to everything else. Right. I kept thinking that I would, you know, I would find the time to replace it with like uh like an aftermarket unit and I've not I have not had the time to do that. Um and what else is there to talk about? The, uh, uh the the one thing I think that separates the BRZ from a lot of other cars that we were mentioning is you were talking about features. Um, there's no active safety gear in this car, mm-hmm. like at all. There's not even blind spot monitoring. Like there's just there's just nothing. I'm um, impressed at least that your model has a camera. Mine doesn't. Why? Well, it's the law, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I I got mine just before that was a thing, which I thought was uh, which is, I thought was interesting. And you know what? The car has a very interesting uh, a dimension that even I'm not used to after now seven years, eight years of ownership. I still find myself pulling way too far forward into spots and realizing I have like two feet behind me in every parking spot I'm in. Which I thought was very funny. It's just interesting that Subaru is such a safety-focused company, and uh, the BRZ does get four stars in in NHTSA testing for crash test, but you just can't get anything active. And they're so into active technology everywhere else. I mean, we've talked extensively about the Subaru AI, so the BRZ is really an outlier. Um, And then I think finally there's... um there's a really weird um, performance dynamic with the vehicle that does take some getting used to. And if you uh, are more in tune maybe with the chassis or the, or the steering, you might not care as much. But the, the engine has a really weird behavior midway through its sort of rev range where it doesn't seem to be doing anything uh, until you go to above five or 6,000 RPM. And then the car just kind of like life livens up a little bit. Wakes you know, up a bit. that doesn't bother me that much. You do notice it on a racetrack, but I'm going to say all those people out there who love VTEC and how VTEC doesn't kick in until the high rev range. How can you celebrate that and yet hate this aspect of the BRZ? I mean, what's the difference? <laughs> yeah, that is a good point. Um, I don't think VTEC cars feel as limp as they do as this thing does between that like three to 5,000 RPM Valley. But in regular cruising, the car's totally fine. Um, I wanted to know, like, my, my biggest fear is what you mentioned before. That's which your, biggest, was, what, your biggest fear? Like, yeah, in all of life. Is okay. that Subaru is so well known about, or, or makes a big hubbub about its uh, safety characteristics. I'm wondering whether or not the next model will be built with, the, with these, safety, like, these safety suites in mind, or even at CVT in mind. Um, and I think that will really change the behavior and the characteristic and the personality of whatever the next generation BRZ could be. I can and virtually then, guarantee that the next generation BRZ will be turbocharged, heavier, probably have a CVT, and not feel anything like this car. Which is why so I in think, every way it shouldn't be called a BRZ or like it isn't a true successor to this product, right? Well, we'll see. But I think that that's why the TS is such an appealing value right now. 
What does that mean? You think that it's going to be like a collector's item? It's no, going to be I just like... think it's if you want this kind of card, this is your last chance. You're not going to get another one. No other car company is going to build a car like this. I can't think of a single car company right now that would build a coupe that they're clearly losing money on that is more focused on driving dynamics than some type of turbocharged power. I mean, everyone's just building turbocharged hatchbacks. Cause it's what, about, what about Toyota, though? Toyota 86. What about Come Toyota? On, it's, it's building the same car. Uh, what I'm saying is when that car goes, the BRZ is gone, too. It's, it's not right. going to continue. On, it's not going to be like BRZ Classic. Actually, it is worth mentioning that lately there's been a bunch of um, spy photos being spread of a car that looks very reminiscent of the uh, of the next generation BRZ or, or Toyota 86 testing in in America in North America of all places, and it looks still pretty slim, pretty small, but uh, it's clear that they're working, they're hatching up something um, that looks pretty sporty, and I'm. Curious to see what's going to happen next. I mean, if you want a blueprint for what the next generation BRZ will probably be like, look at the 370Z. The current 370Z or whatever's happening after? The the current 370Z, just in terms of form factor and price point. And I mean, I just can't see them continuing to build a car that doesn't have big profit margins for them when they could make like a turbocharged uh, 370Z sized coupe and probably generate a little more cash. Can I admit that I think I've over the years I think I've been a little harsh on the 370Z. I think in hindsight I'm looking at it now and realizing that it was a pretty it is a pure pretty pure coupe, but it just sometimes feels a little dated in comparison to what else is on the market in terms of its interior. Well, it's 100 like, percent dated. I mean, if it was right. like eight years ago, we'd probably like it a lot more. It's you know, and and in some ways I think the BRZ suffers from that as well because the BRZ got clobbered by all these turbo engines. <laughs> yeah, but I mean it's not an engine that really bothers me in either of these two vehicles. I think uh, the, the three point seven is not is not a good you sounding like refined engine. No, interesting. I think there's a lot of enthusiasts that find the that VQ engine to have a lot of character. I think it's harsh. Okay, in the three point seven, in three point seven guys. Yeah, I think it's harsh. I don't think it's much more refined than the BRZ's 2-liter, which sounds pretty pretty bad sometimes. No? I'm, it I sounds like a boxer engine. I can't really think of a naturally aspirated 4 that doesn't sound... That, that sounds great. I mean, <laughs> unless if you have, like, the right headers on a Subaru, yeah, it can sound pretty decent, but it's, they're not known for their uh, oral character. Right. I think that's really important because the most like that signature that audio signature that comes the with a Subaru is mostly found on the on the turbo models and usually an, a modified model with like those different headers i think they're called unequal length headers so um it's it's really cool to hear people say that they would buy one of these things but i'm not sure that a lot of people actually made that commitment and as a result we're seeing these really weird um i don't know if they're special editions or like they just seem like they're biding their time waiting for the next model to come out with these I don't I don't want to call it a half-hearted attempt at something but like I don't think it's half-hearted at all I think it's a great. niche specialist a niche a very niche special model of an already niche car It's a great car Everyone looking for a sports car should go drive a TS I'm serious Okay <laughs> that's that's fair I think that's, that's a good <laughs> That's it That's it bam <laughs> Okay, I think that's a fair point. I think you'll quickly learn what kind of uh, performance car you're after after you drive a vehicle like the TS. It's a, it, you'll realize whether or not you're looking for a car that is more uh, suited to like that one person, one car, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Synergy? Or you're looking for something that has power and street, cre- street presence. And and that's, I, I want to double not- down on what I said about VTEC 
The S2000 <laughs> is terrible at low RPM. Absolutely yeah. terrible. There's nothing exciting about it at all. And yet yeah. that car is canonized and the BRZ gets gets just dissed. So, do you think that 10 years down the line, we'll look back on the BRZ and be like, ah, we were kind of wrong about I that? I think the BRZ is as good as the S2000. Whoa. Yeah. I, I personally would prefer the BRZ. I think it drives a lot better. Um, yeah. And uh, the the only the wow factor of the here, here we go we're killing all of our Honda listeners right now but <laughs> the wow factor of nine thousand RPM is what sold that car and that's fine and that was fine twenty years ago but you know it's not twenty years ago anymore and uh, I think the BRZ pulls its weight just as well. Very cool. I'm looking forward to hearing what people have to say about this thing. And you know what? I'm as somebody who owns one uh, of these uh, these FRSs, I am both. I love it. I also am aware of all of its flaws, and I'm I'm totally here. All the people who say that it's just not powerful enough, or that engine has no character, or whatever X, Y, and Z. They've always got a, a million excuses not to get one, which is fine. You don't have not everyone needs to buy one. You need to drive it and tell and decide for yourself if it's for you. But I think there's a lot of people who didn't even give it a chance. And I want to say that whole anti S S two thousand. Uh, tirade that I just went on the whole time I was saying that I was holding a model of Suki's pink S2000 from Too Fast Too Furious so yeah from the Fast and the Furious franchise right make, make of that what you will um, I want to talk about a car that I think is really confusing um, and I feel really embarrassed saying that because I'm supposed to be a professional but uh, I think I you've established know. you're not professional on this. I podcast. am a prof- I am pretty professional I'm pretty professional <laughs> would you put that one. on a business card yeah, I would. Pretty professional. I mean, pretty, comma, professional automotive journalist. Um, I'm talking about the car that I drove this week, which is the Cadillac CT5V. It is the Dash V series of this car. And this is an important car because it's the first time we've heard of the, C- I mean, the, the CT5 nameplate, which was um, recently introduced. Cadillac has renamed all of their vehicles. And... This is a model with a with what seems like a pretty performance oriented engine and uh, and nomenclature because every time we used to see these dash V's, it meant that there's something good was under the hood, and this doesn't seem like the case in this model here. Uh, and the price and size don't seem to um, mesh with the with the marketing message that Cadillac is sending. So, so let's let's back up a bit. So sure. what what the CT5V is is the same thing as the M340i and the C43 AMG. It is the dilution of the performance brand in order to differentiate a model from other lesser models on the luxury marketplace, correct? Yeah, and it's really important that you brought up the C43 and M340i because um, in all of the documentation that uh, that Cadillac provides, it says that this car is meant to compete with these, um, these two models. However, as far as I remember, the CT5 was meant to replace the CTS and the newly introduced ct4 was meant to replace the ats that's how i understand I don't, how i understood the the transition to the new names and that I didn't happen C, i thought the ct6 was more of a cts replacement i think that was more of a seven series kind of car it wasn't as big as a seven series though but it was just as luxurious and i think if you got one of those like uh highest trim levels you're talking about pretty pretty seven series-esque um character mm. Okay. So as a result, I'm talking about a car that uh, uh, is commonly being okay. Fine. If you want to say that the that the they're saying they've been saying that message for a long time, 
Uh, that's fine. But when I looked at the the size of the CT5, I was really, again, I really questioned what they're thinking. The CT5, the V that I have, is uh, eight inches shorter than a three series. Shorter. Yeah. I thought I thought you said it was longer when we were talking earlier. Sorry. Is yeah, you're right. I messed that up completely. It's actually eight inches longer than the three series. It's within an inch of uh, of length of the five series. It's way bigger than a C class, uh, and and way bigger than a. Uh, I put an S60 in here. I mean, this uh, is a, this is not really a, a, anything new for Cadillac. I mean, the CTS has always been bigger than the three series. It was always a tweener car between the three and the five. So I think they're just yeah. sticking to their to their game plan and they're giving people more car for less money i'm going to assume okay well my ct5v which uh features a three liter twin turbo v6 makes 360 horsepower and 405 pound feet of torque okay it's a pretty decent motor it sounds pretty good but i'm um as far as i can tell i think it's fake i think there's a lot of noise happening inside my cabin that is pumping a lot of a lot of neato fancy noises into the into the car and making me feel pretty impressed with the car. And I don't think it's real. Um, you'll also note that 360 horsepower is 20 horsepower less than the um, BMW M340. And it is also 25 horsepower less than the C43. Additionally, my fully loaded model was $65,000, while a M340i X-Drive starts at $56,000, $9,000. Yeah, but I mean, you could so easily <laughs> tack on the price. So right. easily add 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 to that money. I mean, have you ever seen a $56,000 M340i? I don't I don't think it exists. I don't think so. I don't think so. Um I will say that the car feels pretty good on the road. Uh it's very stable at speed. Um very impressive at how comfortable and fast it is. It um, it has really strong brakes. I was really impressed with the braking, and this is a car that's fresh from the factory. It's got like uh, like less than a thousand miles on it, so uh, it feels pretty good. The usual issues that I have with the car is I don't think it looks very. Is the same thing that I would I would criticize past Cadillac uh, sports sedans. I don't think it looks particularly attractive both inside and out. Um, and there are some difficulties that uh, arise with the usability of its infotainment system. Um, I think the best way to, to, to get through a Cadillac experience is to use Android Auto or Apple CarPlay. Oof. And, and uh, you know, first of all, they've added another knob to control the infotainment system to the vehicle. So you've got the usual one that's between the two seats. And then they added another one on the dashboard next to the volume knob. Which is super weird. And I want, I want like a hidden knob that you have to discover <laughs> in the car. And every car that's built with the hidden knob, the knob does something different. And then there's like an online kind of a treasure hunt where you have right. to figure out which knob did you get. And then everyone talks about their knob, their their, their knob <laughs> functionality. I think yeah, that would be of fascinating. Of course you do. Um, so is this a car that really made me forget about the three series, uh, especially the, C, the the M340 or the uh, C43, absolutely not. Um, zero, zero percent chance. I don't think that these these two established names in the in the segment, which is the C class and the three series, have anything to be worried about from what Cadillac is sending over. It's a very good product from Cadillac. I don't. I just don't think it's nearly as impressive as it needs to be. Sorry, like it just isn't. Um, and I'm curious to see how this um, translates into the CT4 
uh, and CT4V, as well as these next-generation performance vehicles that they have, which are renamed Blackwing, which um, is confusing because they don't use the Blackwing engine. No, everything about this is confusing. It is Absolutely. There is no clear path forward for Cadillac. Uh, I think that I don't know how things are going to shake out with the recent leadership changes. And, I mean, is this company going to end up just building EVs? Who knows? That's the indication that we've received recently. They debuted a, uh, they debuted a new electric car called the Lyric, which was boasting a 300-mile range. But then Cadillac dropped the bomb on everyone by saying that they will be releasing this car in two years, which by then I think we'll have flying cars, right? I mean, I will. Or submarine cars, submersible cars. Every, car is, every car is submersible, Sammy. Well, I hate to break yes. it to you, but... <laughs> um, so I, I'm not sure, like, even that direction seems misguided, right? <laughs> like... It's tough. It's tough to look at Cadillac and, and be confident about their future. There is one thing that I think we're all looking forward to is the is the the, the driving of the new Cadillac uh, Escalade, which will feature Super Cruise. I think that's a great idea. I can't wait to drive that. I think that's the one thing that we're all mean, waiting for. You mean you can't wait to be a passenger in the left-hand seat? Yeah. And I also think that is also an image that is really dated, and I'm not sure if it um, – is something that an automaker should be holding on to, especially as other other automakers try to reach a, a more environmentally conscious uh, mindset or maybe more sustainability approach, uh, a better sustainability approach. The Escalade feels like a dinosaur um, in terms of how big it is, how inefficient it'll be. Um, and I'm not sure that's a thing that, uh, uh, an image that Cadillac wants to put its best. I mean, it's, it is going to be their best product, but... It's not. It shouldn't be the only good product that they make. I, I got to disagree with you. I think there are millions of people who love big trucks and BMW with the X7 that we talked about recently. Uh, it's just as everything you mentioned about the Escalade, and I liked it a lot. So I don't think it's an image problem for Cadillac. I think a lot okay. of people like their luxury to be over the top, and Cadillac has something for them in that truck. It's not quite that the luxury is is the issue with me. I think it's going to be great how like opulent it'll be and how uh, impressive that will be. But I just think that you know putting all your eggs on this one big SUV won't bode well for them in the future because there's going to be a lot of there's a lot of places around the world that are trying that are suggesting the um, phase out of vehicles that are reliant on fossil fuels. Yeah, I don't know Cadillac if that will actually sell in those markets, so it doesn't matter to them. They're selling in the United States, and in the United States, tons of people want this truck. But you can't be that successful by focusing on one market, can you? I don't know. I mean, look at Ford. They sell a million as, uh, a million F-150s a year in the United States. I think so. I think that kind of answers your question. <laughs> but they also have successful rollouts of other vehicles in other markets, smaller vehicles like the Fiesta and Focus. Yeah, and, and those cars are bankrolled by the F-150. Mm-hmm. In fact, every electric vehicle that we've ever talked about in the show is bankrolled by um, pickups and, and SUVs and huge... Uh, gasoline chugging monstrosities and um mm-hmm. the the entire electric future is built on fossil fuels so the these profits are very important to these companies of course i mean but eventually that that has to change that has to switch over and i don't know when that's going to happen because the technology seems quite expensive and the vehicles seem really costly to develop where, where a pickup vehicle seems less like less so right uh pass on answering that okay I want to talk about something that you and I have uh, have discussed a little bit in the future in the past, which were these like 
What? Sorry, I'm just imagining us discussing something in the future, and it sounds yeah, so cool. cool. It sounds it is so very cool. cool. I like. I'm, no, tell, I, I just. I just. Can you tease me a little bit with what the future's like? <laughs> no, I just can't. tell me one thing. The, I know you're sworn. I know you're sworn to secrecy. The time, the time traveler's code, and it involves. Not teasing people about You're the always future. pulling that BS, and then after I say something, you're like, I knew you were going to say that. And I'm like, how can you say that? <laughs> I knew it. I knew that. I knew how you'd come get you're allowed to say that, it. but you're not allowed to say the other thing? It's not fair, because I don't know exactly what you're going to say, but I know your general tone and how you're going to feel about I it. I know you're and... lying about all of that. You know exactly what everything is going to say or happen or whatever. I mean, that's the first rule of being a time cop. Okay, well... We were talking about platform mutts, which were vehicles that were built from a bunch of different parts, like an automaker's parts bin, and didn't really deliver on on any sort of promise of those parts. What do you think, Ben? Do you want to talk? You want to bring 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 this up with our our listeners? I think they might find this interesting. I think cars that are built by committee, where they're like kind of they there maybe one part of them was engineered to be unique and then the rest of it was for budgetary reasons they just grabbed a whole bunch of stuff from a bunch of other cars and kind of put it in a blender and and then tried to sell that smoothie to everybody mm-hmm. uh, i you know platform sharing is one thing uh, but this is kind of going beyond that and the car i think that exemplifies that the best is the the Pontiac Solstice Sammy. do you remember that car I do remember that car. I didn't realize, though, until we started talking about it, that it had so much um, of of GM's other like components and and fingerprints all over it. So many different brands are involved in the in the Pontiac Solstice and the um, the Saturn sibling, which was the Sky. And and you know what's weird is so the, the Kappa platform that it rode on was kind of a dead end. I mean, they made it for this car. They made this hydroformed frame and um, hand-welded everything together. And then they took everything else about the vehicle, except for the, they built a, they, they, GM was trying to show off the Ecotech four-cylinder engines, and they, they built a, a longitudinal version of the the 2.0 uh, mm. turbo car, a turbo engine that they had. And that, that was kind of unique. But I mean, the base motor was like lifted from the Pontiac G6 and the HHR and all sorts of other vehicles. Oh, yeah. Nothing the, says performance coupe like the HHR. The, the manual... Well, anything tr- about that car should go into a performance vehicle, right? The manual transmission came out of the Chevrolet Colorado pickup. Uh, <laughs> The the automatic no the automatic came out of the CTS and the um what was the vehicle at the time the SRX and the differential and the axles were SRX sourced and the inside was like a, a Hummer Pontiac Cobalt um, XLR they just oh, exploded God. everywhere um, even the lights on the outside were taken from GMC and Pontiacs like just every every vehicle they could snag something from ended up in this in the Solstice and the Solstice failed for a couple of reasons I mean it's hard to survive your brand going bankrupt which is what <laughs> which is what happened to Pontiac but if the Pontiac Solstice had been good they would have done what's what uh, Toyota did right with the FRS which is bring it over to Toyota and sell it as the 86 but um mm-hmm. the Solstice was kind of dogged by being too heavy Mm-hmm. It was never really a focused vehicle because GM never really gave it their full attention, right? They just kind of, they just kind of said, "Here you go. Here's here's your roadster slash coupe in the, in the final year." And uh, the 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 other problem with it was was supremely impractical. Once the top was down, you couldn't yeah. fit anything in the car at all, like anything right. at all. The trunk was just 
maxed out and the inside had nowhere to put anything. And, you know, there's a car that I like very much, the Alpha 4C, which is the same thing. Like if you take the folding top and you put it in the trunk, you're screwed. But that's an Alfa Romeo, <laughs> which is mid-engine. I think everyone expects that car to be super impractical. I don't think Pontiac Pyres were asked to be forced to choose between a bag of groceries and having the top down. Well, if the if these two cars were really, really impressive in terms of its uh, their performance credentials, maybe people would be able to, you know, you know, like rationalize that that sacrifice. But from what I understand, this car was not that was not that great to drive. With the, with the turbo, it was very quick. It's just the right. handling. It was around three thousand pounds, and it really didn't have to be given its size. Mm-hmm. So, if you're comparing it against the Miata of the of the era, it does not it does not bode well for that car. I do think that the the Solstice in the Sky and the subsequent failure of it really really opened the door um, to what we have now, which is like sharing be- between different brands or automakers. The new MX-5 and the Alpha and the Fiat uh, One Two, what is it called? One Two Four Spider. They needed to to pair up in order to make a new performance uh, or whatever you want to call it convertible and Subaru and Toyota, as we mentioned, have to had to pair up in order to make something like this. Well, I, while I, I... I I, got to disagree with you because, I mean, badge engineering is is something different, I think, than what we're talking about. That's, that's, you know, sharing a platform, maybe sharing a bit of sheet metal, but um, the vehicle was was designed. Yeah. But those vehicles were specifically designed to be their their own vehicle. I mean, the Solstice was, it was a half-baked idea that had a Mm -hmm. bunch of parts thrown at it. So that's what I'm saying is I think that, you know, if an automaker like GM had the idea but didn't have the the money or the exec- the ability to execute it properly, that's what we ended up having now is now a, a company like Toyota or Subaru says, I've got a good idea. How can we make this happen without turning it into the solstice or sky? And they were like, well, let's go talk to Toyota or let's go talk to Subaru and make that happen. So there's there's other cars that have kind of endured the same kind of thing. Uh, one of them is as another roadster, the BMW Z3. And I think a lot of people forget that when the Z3 came out in the mid-90s, it it did not really turn people on right away because first the, the, the first real problem with the partsman mentality of the Z3 was the 1.9-liter four-cylinder engine that it came with oh. for the, the first year in North America. And it was terrible. It was like 130-something horsepower. It was way too uh, – you would look at the Z3 and you're like, this car is going to be fun to drive. And then you would fire up that terrible engine, which was borrowed from like some Euro economy sedan. And mm-hmm. you would just be completely disappointed. So it took them a full year to get a six in it, which was – Well, I mean, a- yeah, that six as well. It's a 2.8-liter straight six. It had um, – an extra 190 horsepower and much more torque so it kind of like gave the car some personality yeah it was it was much much better but the the biggest problem with the parts bin approach to the z3 was they they took the e36 3 series and tried to use it as the base for the roadster which makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense because it was their most modern platform of that era but it turns out that the suspension in the back couldn't give them a flat trunk floor it couldn't give them any kind of really usable space so they went back in time and they grabbed the semi-trailing arm setup from the e30 3 series which is old school tech (laughs) But the the way they kind of morphed it onto the E36, it created a situation where the rear subframe and the rear floors would just tear off the car. Uh, what? And yeah, it, it happened a lot in the M cars, the Z3M, because of horsepower. But if you took the regular cars on racetracks, it was not uncommon for this to happen. And you would end up with cracks and then eventually tearing and then eventually you can't drive the car anymore. So wow. there are a whole bunch of 
shops and um, small companies that came up with reinforcement kits that that mm-hmm. fixed the floor issue. And this was also a problem, I want to say, with the E46 M3 as well, although not nearly as bad. But the Z3 is really where that came out. So this is a case where a company saw a chance to save some money to get a car to market. Instead of redesigning a suspension to fit the E36 platform, they just grabbed something they had. But the thing that they had had been designed in like the early 80s. So it wasn't really that sophisticated anymore. And uh, it kind of, it, it ran the risk of ruining this product. Unfortunately, it didn't. Uh, the Z3 is kind of a classic today. And um, if, if the car is properly reinforced, you're not going to have any issues with it. But it is, it, you know, BMW doesn't make this kind of mistake too often. Although I will say the same issue happened on the Z8, from what I understand. <laughs> That's interesting. It is also interesting that like these Z cars seem to have some kind of like the Z3 and the new Z4 and even the Z8 had a little bit of like controversy associated to them, be it uh, underperform or underwhelming performance or the fact that you know they made it with with Toyota in the new Z, in the new Z4. Um, it's interesting that they have that like common thread um, among them. I I actually honestly didn't know this about the Z3 and that. Um, that reliability concern that you mentioned. So that's something to really think about if you're going on the used on the used car market. The problem with the Z8 is much more dire because, as I understand it, there are no repair parts available. Right. So no one who owns a Z8 will put it on a racetrack anymore. They won't risk it because once it tears, you're done. It can't be repaired from from what I understand. Crazy. So that's too bad. I mean, you have a really good sports car that can never be driven like it should be. The last car I think we should talk about is one that I am um, a little bit more familiar with is the Lexus RCF. And the RC platform is a whole is a whole bunch of weird um you know mixing and matching between all of Lexus's other products. Um particularly the IS and the GS. But from what I understand that they needed to get some part of the last generation Lexus IS convertible to make it all work. And so as a result, you've got all the, this, mismatch, this mishmash of, uh, of genes and traits from different Lexus models just to make this, uh, this coupe that I don't even think many people liked. <laughs> well, the problem with the RC is it's not so much that they needed to get that DNA in there. They were, they were ordered to do it because uh, they planned to make a convertible version. The ISC was, was gone, the convertible mm-hmm. version of the IS. And you'd think that if they were just going to make a coupe, they could just take the IS platform shrink it down to a two-door and you're done right right but but with a convertible in the mix they needed it to be strong enough to stay rigid and fun and sporty or i mean all of those have an asterisk right because we're talking about lexus but uh they they needed to do all that with a top down uh they wanted to do a convertible so they're like okay we're gonna give you a uh lexus gs front suspension and we'll give you the rear of an is and then in the middle we'll have the isc and that made it really heavy. Like, it made the car much heavier than it needed to be because they just canceled the convertible. They, they decided finally, oh, we're not going to do it, but we're still going to build this coupe on this platform that we've, like, Frankenstein together. So you ended up with a really heavy car. It was 4,000 pounds. That's yeah. really – I mean, this was 2014 when it came out. So, <laughs> yeah. like, we're used to these kind of heavy cars that now, but, like, imagine – the RCF has 467 horsepower, which is not so bad. But imagine no. you're driving like a base RC coupe, like the RC yeah, the 350. 350, which is like 300 horsepower. Or yeah, something. And, and you're trying to move 4,000 pounds with that. That's like 500 pounds less than my Jeep. So like that's that's really heavy. <laughs> um, um, I do think that's funny that like it almost feels like they had to make the RCF with that with that five liter V8 to make the car like actually make sense. 
It's, you know, that that's a good point. And I think that it's, it's like they thought if they stuffed like a hot V8 engine in it, it would erase all of their sins. But really all it, all it did was more closely identify uh, or, or uh, highlight the problems with the chassis because now you're going fast and you're trying to turn a corner before, yeah. before in the regular RSC, you were never getting that fast when you got to the corner, you were still going a reasonable speed. But if you're right. going quick and you try to turn all of that mass was like, Hey, now <laughs> I don't think you want to do that. And you suddenly had, instead of a sports car, you ended up with like a grand touring car that was not really appropriately priced for its segment. <laughs> I also think it's funny if you want to talk about the the non uh, the non F version of this car, the RC three fifty is also available with all wheel drive. And if you see it with all wheel drive, you'll notice that the front, like the front wheels, has a significant like there's a, a lift. Like it feels like a like a monster truck almost. It's like three inches taller than the the non all wheel drive version of the car. It looks so, so are funny. You, are you saying the all wheel drive RC might have Bigfoot DNA in it too? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's significant wheel gap in the front fenders, and it looks so funny and awkward. Um, and there's no way that you can look at that and be like, yeah, they must have designed it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I, so I think yeah, those those are the three cars I kind of wanted to talk about because they, they've been floating around in my brain, and I kind of find it fascinating when, when this kind of thing happens. I mean, you can successfully build a parts bin car, but unless you're really, really focused on the task at hand, chances are you're going to misfire. Hmm. Um, I do think it's important to bring up like the fact that like so many of these smaller performance cars um, needed to be done in in conjunction with another automaker. I do I do think that's that's a clear sign that we're being given now is that automakers have learned their lesson of making these Frankenstein vehicles on their own and would rather share the cost and make something right with somebody else. That's just my take on it. But anyways. So if you want to share your take with us, if you want to make things right and do things right, the Unnamed Automotive Podcast way, the best way for you to do that is go to unnamedautomotivepodcast.com, where we have links to every episode we've ever done. We're closing it on 200, Sammy. Can you believe that? Holy moly. Yeah. And there's a, if you want to tell us about your favorite episode, you can, there's a contact form on there that will allow you to do that. You just enter in your information. It gets emailed directly to us. Or you can uh, subscribe using your podcatcher of choice. We have links to Spotify, Google, Apple, YouTube, all that stuff's up there. I believe we're going to be on Amazon Music soon. Um, Yay. Whenever that happens. And, um, in any case, uh, it's all available at unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. Sammy, are there other ways people can get in touch with us? Absolutely. You can reach out to us on social media. I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Sammy underscore ha, like you're laughing. Uh, and you can find Ben on Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin. You can also send Ben an email the old-fashioned way. It's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting.com. And uh, next week, Sammy, I'm going to be talking about the 707 horsepower Jeep Grand Cherokee Trackhawk, which I've been driving around this week, hauling tires, doing all that fun stuff. Uh, and w- what are you going to be talking about? I'm going to be talking about the completely uh, incomparable to your vehicle. I have a Nissan Rogue Sport. Wow. I mean, I'm excited. I'm excited. You would be excited. Of course you would. Um, so be sure to check in next week when we're talking about these two vehicles and whatever else might happen next week i think there's some big news happening and i can't wait to talk about it all right thanks for listening everybody bye